Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I am your host, James DiPietro. This is a show from Pasadena, California, that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I am proud to welcome author and illustrator Marla Frazee. There are a few times when you get to host a guest that has had such an impact on you and your family. Her books have been our favorites for years, and her stories have made our world brighter. Born and raised in the Los Angeles area, Marla attended Art Center College of Design here in Pasadena. Since publishing her first book, she has created an illustrious career, author illustrating and illustrating books that are powerful, funny, and always heartfelt. She is the author illustrator behind the Farmer Books, Santa Claus, the world's number one toy expert, The Boss Baby, which was developed into a series of films, Roller Coaster, and A Couple of Boys Have the Best Week Ever, to name a few. Among others, she has illustrated The Seven Silly Eaters, Babies Everywhere, Hillary Clinton's It Takes a Village, All the World, and last year's The Great Zapfino. For her work, Marla has been recognized twice as a Caldecott honoree, a recognition for being one of the best children's book illustrators in the country. Last month, Marla's latest book, In Every Life, was published. It is a project that has a passing connection, and one that dates back to 1998. It is a continuation of Marla's incredible voice as an author and illustrator, blending intimate portraits and vast landscapes to tell a timeless message. Marla welcomed me to her home in Pasadena, and we recorded this episode in her backyard right beside her illustrating cottage. Having the sound of birds and a police helicopter billowing overhead at one point made it all the more special. So without further delay, my conversation with author and illustrator Marla Frazee. Marla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. It's nice to be talking to you. Well, and thank you very much for having us in your backyard. And we hope that the birds will pick <laughs> up on the audio so we can get the birds and the wind and it makes the whole kind of interview really special. So to get us started, can you share a little bit about your background? As I know you grew up in Los Angeles and your parents were from, your grandparents were from uh, Lebanon. Is that correct? That's right. All four of my grandparents on both sides, their families were from Lebanon. My grandfathers, I think both of them, were born there and came as young boys to this country via Canada. So one of them came through Ellis Island. And eventually they all sort of migrated diagonally south through the United States. My dad's family ended up in Helper, Utah, and my mom's family ended up in Los Angeles. But the two families knew each other. And so there are pictures of, you know, when they would visit, like either my mom's family would go to Utah and visit with my dad's family, and they would put my mom and dad and other kids together in photographs. So we have pictures of my mom and dad as kids over like their early years, which are really special and kind of amazing. And then they didn't meet again until they were, you know, I think right out of high school. And so soon after, started dating and then got married pretty young, but, you know, marriage age. <laughs> and um, so I just love the history of, of the two families and how they've known each other for so long. That's very cool. So much of your imagery is of children growing up. What was your childhood like in Los Angeles? Well, basically, from the time I was about three, 
until all through elementary school. We lived in Encino in the San Fernando Valley in a very post-World War II neighborhood where everybody seemed to be the same age. There were, all the families had kids our age, and it was a very walkable and bikeable neighborhood system. We walked to school, and there was a big park near us, Balboa Park, and it was, it was a great place to grow up. I felt you know, just like so surrounded by people that knew me and friends and kids. So that was that was basically where where I grew up. And You've been drawing since you were two years old. You famously have, I guess, that <laughs> picture that you still have. Your your mom saved it. Yeah, the the it's the cat. It's the cat. <laughs> it's a cat. Um, and you've described being shy and somewhat afraid as a child. Was drawing a way to make the world less scary? You know, I I don't remember being, you know, that young when I drew that cat. But I do remember, well, I've heard stories about myself not wanting to to speak to anybody other than, you know, my mom and one neighbor named Lee, who I loved. She used to live, before we moved to Encino, we lived in downtown L.A. somewhere in an apartment building. And she lived in one of the units. And I would go up and she would give me like little baby marshmallows in a red plastic thermos cup (laughs) and and apparently that was you know that I was safe enough with her to 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 talk to her but I didn't talk to very many people so I think drawing must have been calming for me or an an escape of some sort I didn't have to interact with people which I I was probably very happy about Um, as I grew older and I I have memories you know of being afraid to do things I was pretty much afraid to do almost everything that I was supposed to be ready to do. And I remember that very distinctly, like, you know, it's time to go to preschool. And I didn't want to do it. I was just and so I didn't, I didn't until kindergarten. And then it was like, nope, you're going to school now. And I remember how scary that was for quite a while. I didn't enjoy it. And then there were things like swimming lessons or spending the night at some friend's house, you know, things like that. They're just, no, thank you. But over time, you know, I, 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 I got less afraid of some of those things. But I do remember the feelings of it really strongly. Mm. I just never quite felt ready to do the thing that other people my age seem to be doing pretty comfortably. You know, based on your career as an author and illustrator, you must have had some pretty strong influences were there any mentors that you had, family, academic, or artistic, that were especially important to you? Well, I think as a child, I was really lucky because my mom had been an elementary school teacher, and she had a lot of her books and records and art supplies and materials like still as part of our, our home. And so she would pull these things out. As a kid, I had all these, you know, things that other children maybe didn't, didn't have access to. And I remember... The Carrot Seed was one of the books that she had, as well as the record, which had this great song that accompanied the book. And I was really influenced by that book. I remember, I didn't know the word subversive then, but I remember feeling like this is an incredible story that this little child, well, it's a, okay, first of all, it's called The Carrot Seed. It's by Ruth Krauss and Crockett Johnson. And I think it was published in 1945. And this little boy plants a carrot seed and his mother and then father and older sibling all tell him that the seed won't grow but he has this inner knowledge that it will 
and it does. And I just thought that was, you know, incredible, a story about a little boy that knew more than the grown-ups and older siblings. I just loved it. So that was, and it's so simple. And so that was one of the defining books of my childhood. I, I wanted to grow up and learn how to do that. I, I remember that feeling. And another one was um, Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. Incredible book still. I, I read it all the time and still learn things from it. And Blueberries for Sal was another book that just really touched me. And I wanted to be that character of little Sal. I wanted to actually be her. And so I don't, I never met an author or illustrator, but I knew that somebody had made those books and I wanted to do it too. Well, could it be louder out here? I mean, all of a sudden. It's great. Is it okay? It's great. Okay. I love it. <laughs> Your career as an artist started at an early age when you illustrated your best friend Lisa's book in the third grade. Was there anything else you wanted to do when you grew up? You know, I was trying to remember if there was. I don't really think so. I mean, when I got to be in high school, I, went, I took one of those academic, I don't know, it was a test, to sort of like vocational test. And I remember when it came back, it said maybe being a poultry farmer would be a good idea for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, that's that's odd and another time well when I went to Glendale College I had some really great classes there and I, I kind of toyed with the idea of anthropology mm. but not that seriously <laughs> I very quickly went back to no I want to illustrate write and illustrate children's books you have three grown boys we were talking about the, this before we started our conversation and you are now a grandmother yes and in reading books was a type of training for you to figure out what worked and what didn't work. Is there a magic formula to telling a children's story? I wish there was some sort of formula because that would make it a lot easier. Maybe it is magic. It's very elusive. You know, I wanted to get published for so long when I got out of school and really tried to get published doing the kind of books I wanted to do for so long. And I was I was mystified why it was taking me so long. And, and I know now a lot of the reasons why it took so long but at the time I didn't but it was really amazing when I had children and started to read to them and experience books from that point of view like reading to them watching um, which books captivated them which ones didn't which ones bored me which ones didn't you know and the ones that and, and why and so that was a, a real education like that really helped me kind of hone in on certain aspects you know a couple things are very hard and grating when you're reading to kids and they're grading to kids too and that would be bad rhyme you know like mm. that is just uh but great rhyme is such a joy and so there's that and just any kind of condescending you know point of view of or patronizing or too didactic like that kind of book is is very hard to take, I think, for both adults and children. It is. And yeah. as, a, as a parent, you're reading the same books over and over. So you have to, as a parent, you have to like them as well as your ch children liking them. That's right. Because you're going to be the one that's going to be reading them and describing them to your children. As an author and illustrator, how do you balance the story that you want to tell with words compared to the story that you are telling with drawings? And before we started our conversation, I mentioned that I asked my th three older kids if there's a question that they wanted to ask you. And my oldest, uh, my, my nine-year-old, 
asked the same question as this question, which was, how do you balance words versus the story you want to tell in your pictures? That's such a great question and impressive that, you know, your child asked it at the age that she did. Because the goal of a great picture book, the goal we have as picture book authors and illustrators is that the words and pictures sort of, it's not initially obvious which part of the book is telling the story. Like you want them to sort of just, it's almost like a dance that they're doing together, you know, and you don't, you know, want to see all the gears or anything. And that is basically one of the hardest, most challenging parts of illustrating a text. Because if it's a picture book text, it's, it's going to have, if it's a great picture book text, it's going to have spaces that aren't really said in the words that are available to you as an illustrator to kind of insert the story of the pictures and have them work together so well that it's it's hard to tell hopefully when the book is being read aloud which which part you're actually receiving as the the narration and so I spend a lot of time you know working out the pagination and like the layouts and what is going to be illustrated on which page and and actually the overarching picture story too like I don't want it to be telling the same thing that the words are saying Mm. sometimes often if I haven't written the text and I'm just the illustrator I have some (laughs) I usually come in with some pretty far out accompanying narration that seems like it's too like when I really start to to try and nail it down, I'm like, you know, that's a little too out there. And so I have to rein that in. And it, it, it and that's not the worst thing because I feel like as an illustrator of another person's text, that one that I haven't written, I feel sort of like it's an acrobatic exercise on my part. Like I want to be bouncing off that text in surprising ways until I sort of settle on the story that makes the most intrinsic sense and that I think it's easier to do that if I kind of come at it in an out in an outlandish way if I have written it and I'm illustrating it both it's trickier actually because if I haven't written it the text exists and it's like I'm bouncing off of it but it's still there and I can kind of reframe what I'm doing if I've written it as well as and, I, and I'm trying to illustrate it I don't know if I should change the picture or the words and sometimes the whole thing sort of falls apart and I have to kind of rebuild it back up but I spend a lot of time in those initial months trying to to figure that out is it harder to write and illustrate versus just illustrate it's funny because I think each book is different I think I've now written and illustrated maybe nine books of my own maybe 10 and and I've illustrated others other people's work too and it's just it's almost like a different exercise completely a different challenge completely there's something really wonderful about conceiving a book from the ground up that feels like such a gift like oh I feel like this is gonna be something and then sometimes it's hard to make it something and then I have that problem I just mentioned, which is like, I'm not sure where the, the issues are. Is it the text? Is it the illustrations? What do I do? And so I do like to kind of balance one book, maybe that is my own, with some the next project, maybe a book that I haven't written. And then I get to do that part. So I do like both, both puzzles. Hmm. 
An interesting part of being an author and illustrator is having a voice. It's how you see the world and how you share it with other people. Do you think you've settled on your voice now? Or is it always changing? You know, it's funny. I think I love that you called it voice for one thing, because sometimes people refer to style as an illustrator's, you know, illustrator's style and then an author's voice. And I use the word voice for both as well. And I feel like it's sort of as much a part of the person who's writing and or illustrating as their personality, you know, and you can kind of adjust your personality to fit certain circumstances, but basically you're who you are. And I, it's hard to, to sort of find that voice and respect it enough to kind of grow it. Because I think, especially at, in art school or any kind of art program, you're often, you know, feeling as if you should be doing something else with your work. It's like you're the thing that maybe a lot of artists or illustrators have have always done is not the thing that when you go into an art program that is probably going to be embraced. It's sort of maybe like, yeah, that's what you do when you're not in art school. But as a teacher, I've, I've kind of tried to get people to sort of refocus on what they've always done and sort of grow that same voice into a more, into, into something that they can actually, you know, use as, as what, how they want to illustrate books because it's the thing that probably led them to wanting to do it in the first place Mm. and so I mean I do feel like with my my voice as an illustrator like sometimes it's more cartooned and sometimes it's more realistic and you know I try and kind of alter my materials to suit the text or my mood or whatever but basically it's a very recognizable you know style and even kids will say I knew that was your book because I saw you know and they they're really good at sort of seeing that and and I think as as an illustrator I I kind of you know appreciate that and I want to you know retain it yeah well you famously have a studio in your backyard which is where we are now and where it's where you write and illustrate we're sitting underneath an avocado tree we were talking about that earlier as an artist how important is having a dedicated place to focus and create because I think of your studio being a character in your story. I kind of do too. <laughs> I think it's it was really important for me. You know, we have we were in this house. I've been in this house since 1986 and pre-children. And so now my three sons are grown men and my oldest has one son and one on the way. Oh, congratulations. Another son on the way, yes. So at one point, I had one of the bedrooms as my studio. It's a three-bedroom bungalow, one with all three boys in it. And that worked until it didn't, and it really didn't work when my oldest son kind of hit middle school years. And so this was built right after that in our backyard. And it's for me, it was... It was a it was a hard thing to do. We didn't really have the financial ability to do it, but here it is. So you know, somehow it it, it did happen, and and it made a huge difference in in my life to have this space, and still does actually. Even though you know, I don't, I'm not raising small kids anymore, and I don't have to you know do the carpool and all the stuff, but. When I leave it or when I enter it, it's kind of like this mental difference between, you know, what I do when I'm not working and what I do when I'm working. And it kind of is a 
is a great just sort of signal to me to to actually get to work. One of the things, though, that's interesting, you said when I write and illustrate, I don't write out here. I only illustrate. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So when I write, I'm in the house. I don't know what that's about, but that's just the way it is. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. So yeah. You, there's a complete separation between the writing yeah. and the illustration. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Several of your stories have been inspired by your real life. Your book, Santa Claus, the world's number one toy expert, developed from your Christmas cards. Uh, the boss baby came from your experiences with your friend Lisa and your son's experience, his experiences with his cat, if my understanding. Uh, roller coaster was conceived during a family trip, and a couple of boys have the best week ever start out as a thank you card, essentially. How much of what you create on paper comes from an emotion that you've had or a moment that you've experienced? I think almost all of it does, really, when I come right down to it. It's, it's sort of what I'm worried about sometimes, what I'm, what I'm angry about, what I can't reconcile, what's confusing me, what I'm, what's, what's consuming my thoughts, like will sometimes show up in the form of a picture book idea. I think with Santa Claus, for instance, it was being overwhelmed at Christmas. <laughs> That's sort of as a parent, like I had this idea to do a book about Santa as being a toy expert. And that was an idea that was sort of percolating in my mind circulating in my mind. But then I remember sitting with that idea for a while and thinking, you know, the thing about Santa that's more interesting, really, that's more emotional is how he chooses what he chooses for you, you know? Yeah. Like that's, as a child, like the feeling that you get, like, how did he know? How did Santa know I wanted this? Like, and I wanted the book to have that element. Yeah. And the toy part, the toy expert part sort of morphed into how busy he had to be to in order to do that job, you know, in that way that all the kids felt that feeling like, how did Santa know? And so it was sort of this combination of, you know, what, what Santa does in terms of giving us a gift, which seems, you know, so magical. And, you know, how did, how did this person know that I wanted this? And also being overwhelmed as a parent. So it was like this sort of combination of both things. With Boss Baby, my oldest, my youngest son, I'm sorry, had this new cat that was really stressing out the whole family. We were all stressed out because we had been a dog family and here was this little kitten and the kitten was wild. And, and my fifth, he was then 15, he came up to me and he said, I am so sorry. I know we have to take him the cat back to the you know adoption place I'm like why why would we take this kitten back and well because it's stressing everybody out I'm like yeah but you guys stressed us out we didn't take you back it'll be fine and I was thinking like how he felt like new parents feel and it was watching him go through that that made me remember how you know it is when you're a new parent you're like how is this little creature taking over our whole household and that feeling of like, you know, just sort of being bossed around by this little tiny thing. And so that's how that, that came about. Mm. Children's books have always been about lessons and learning, but it feels like as a whole, children's and young adult books are now so much more dynamic. You know, I was rewriting this question this morning. Um, I know that they're for different ages, but back in the day, there were adventures like Harold and the Purple Crayon by uh, Crockett Johnson, who you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And now there are books like Journey by Aaron Becker. Do you think books today and today's readers are different than they were a generation ago? That's a big question. It is a big question. I do think books today, we are in a very golden age of children's books, I feel like. 
there have been times in the past where like it seemed like books for children were driven more by chain bookstores and the commercial more the commercial needs of meeting the chain bookstore needs and it just there was sort of a a more generalized sense of children's books needing to be a certain way right now we're kind of in an opposite to me version of that well before that before the chains it was sort of library driven I think more and schools like but library like librarians were buying the books that were they could be more specific to certain readers maybe longer maybe um you know they didn't have to meet the needs of of the the more commercial book chains and now we're in this like kind of wonderful independent bookstore world of you know there's there's it's a healthier landscape I think at least in my point of view and much more diverse books and a lot of things are being published now that wouldn't have been published even 10 years ago Mm. so I think more kids hopefully are seeing themselves in books and more specific stories and and visually they're just gorgeous a lot you know picture books now what people are doing in picture books is just it's such an art form and so and graphic novels and that sort of thing are just I mean there's 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 so much going on so I think in that in that respect like the book market is is certainly broader and more diverse and I love that as for kids, I think they're more sophisticated visually, for sure. I think many people feel like, at least with picture books, like they, the text is sort of shorter than it used to be, and that's a, a loss. But I don't think that's always true. And I think there's something about the um, word-picture dynamic that kids are more sophisticated about. You can um, depend more on like the bouncing around of words and pictures. They're used to it in a different way. So that's fun and dynamic. Your audience has changed a little bit. I think so, yeah. A little more sophisticated, like you said. An especially powerful element of your storytelling is your restraint. What details you include versus what you leave out of your drawings. So like in the best week ever, for example, how do you decide to use James and Eamon just looking at each other through binoculars versus how do you create the scene where they're looking at the sunset? Also a big question. Yeah. I mean, I thank you for that compliment. I consider it a compliment that you said the restraint piece because I think, I mean, I do, I'm not a filmmaker, but I do appreciate film. And I think as a picture book illustrator, sometimes I, I, I think of it sort of as a movie, like a close up or, um, you know, really a focus, a tight focus on, on an expression or um, just a moment that doesn't necessarily require a whole lot of extraneous detail and then other moments like for instance with the a couple of boys have a best week ever when James and Eamon are on the on the dock looking at the sunset that's a moment where I think the text well talks about how they realize like the week was coming to an end and they would soon have to go home and that feeling of you know all kids know that feeling like you know, it's just like you're in it and it's fun and you're having the great greatest time. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my gosh, tomorrow we have to go home. And, and I wanted to have that feeling be what I was illustrating. And in order to do it, I felt like I needed to pull back and sort of have this 
glorious world out there that they are going to miss, you know? And so those, those kinds of decisions I, I work out in like thumbnail sketches. And that's kind of when I was saying how in the beginning of a project, I really do work out all those things. Like how, how am I going to get that feeling? And then in tiny, tiny little thumbnail sketches that nobody else could understand what I was doing. But when I look at them, I, I know what it was I was trying to figure out. It's kind of like, well, I'm going to need this whole page to show this moment. I don't always know what that moment's going to be, but I know the feeling I want to generate there. So mm. sometimes I even write the emotion, like here I'm going for, you know, sorrow, or this is, this is going to be a joyous page, or this is, you know, this, this is going to be a funny payback, or, you know, and then I figure out from that emotion what it is I need to do with that page layout. You have a very poetic style that's evolved over the years and you have the ability to surprise and I found that most evident in the great uh, Zapfino because it is in black and white which is different and some of the drawings are a little bit rougher and which kind of allows you the reader to focus on the main character how did the great Zapfino emerge as you were drawing him the character it's the character okay for, first of all that that manuscript by Mac Barnett is just I've never seen anything like it. So it's very spare with the text. I mean, it begins with this patter of a master of ceremonies at a, at a circus introducing the great Zapfino and this dive he's going to take from like 10 stories onto a little trampoline. And then there's, it's a wordless whole middle of the book in which Zapfino just, he disappears from the circus tent. He reappears, no words. And then at the end... He takes the dive under very different circumstances. I'm not going to give away the ending. But I had thought, you know, I was thinking about who this Zapfino character was. And I remember Mac and I got on the phone early on before I started really drawing. And I said, is there, what made you write this? <laughs> like, you know, we're, we've been friends for a lot of years. And he's so, he's brilliant. And he said, you know, I've always loved books in which the main character is ill-suited for the story he's in. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that, stop talking. That's all I need to know. So, so I, I had that as almost my mantra for this book. Okay. He doesn't want to be in this story. Like this is not his story. He has a different story. He's going to live and so at first I thought of him being like he was born into this circus family and I was drawing like his parents and siblings and then the great Zapfino. And I thought they would all have names that sort of were opposite what they actually look like. So the great Zapfino was the tiniest little one of the group. And then there might be like, you know, other characters that had other names. And then I just got rid of all those other characters and just centered on him. And so he was still tiny. And as I drew him, and I knew he wanted to disappear, that he, he had this desire to disappear, really, like not be there. I kind of he simplified him to the point where he was sort of a comic character looking character. And, and that's why I think I went into black and white, because I was thinking of it as a comic. And I thought it would be easier for him to disappear into the book if it was in black and white, and then reemerge as himself, like he created the person he was supposed to be, he's meant to be all along. And so that, those, those were some of my thoughts as I, as I kind of went through the drawings. I had a really good time illustrating that book. You mentioned that there are not that many words. The story's there, but there are not that many words. Yeah. And I, actually, last night I reread it, and 
there are 30 pages in the book and they're only seven with words and some of those pages have just like behold or something like that it's yeah. just one word on the on the page so it's you, you tell so much in the story without using the words and i love the architecture you used you know it's Thanks. kind of a um the miami-ish art deco the scenes are kind of looking down i'm not going to give away anything but one of the things i, I did want to comment on was that you create these little scenes of Zapfino because he became an elevator operator. And we're not giving away anything, but but uh, on one page you have 40 vignettes of just him and people, or I think there's one that's there's a dog or a cat. <laughs> and each of those 40 pictures could be a story in itself. And I think that's what makes that particular page so magical. There are two pages that you have those scenes, but that on the one that has 40 different scenes, each of those scenes could be its own book. And I thought that was incredible because you can, you kind of feel those stories in that page. And so I just want to compliment you on that. I, I, that's something I especially loved in that page and, the, and, and, and in the book Thank as a you. whole. You know, it's funny. I just have a little story to aside about that, Please. those pages, because I was very excited when I came up with the idea of Mac, be, I mean, of Zapfino being an elevator operator. Mac had made certain narrative suggestions, but he didn't specify what his job would be. And I was trying to figure out, like, how to get him back and forth to a job and still have enough pages to do what I needed to do yeah. with the rest of the story. And and I thought, you know, he should probably work and live in the same place. That would kind of be economical. And then I thought, like, oh, my God, an elevator operator. That makes sense. Which was, like, such a great feeling as an illustrator when you kind of crack like a puzzle that you didn't really know was there, but was there. I was just so excited. So then I started researching elevators and it was like, I'm going to have to show the mechanism of these elevators. I took pictures of like the inner workings of elevators and it was so beyond my capability. I was like, I don't want to do that. And so when I came up with the idea of just the boxes, it was like a relief to me because I didn't want to draw them, you know, mechanical aspect. But when Max saw it, he was he said something about how they operated as like actually like single panel cartoon strips, which was a real compliment to me. I, I it wasn't something that was a conscious decision. It was basically because I didn't want to draw the the complications of the you know mechanical workings. So I think it's sort of funny that that's how it turned out. But it it's beautiful. <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's beautiful. And it's even more interesting to hear that that was your 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 idea about him, him being an elevator operator and him living and working in the same location. I think it's, it's a really interesting story. So before we get into In Every Life, which is the book that came out this month, we're recording this at the end of February. You got thrust into the culture wars recently when your book, uh, Babies Everywhere, which I thought was kind of a benign book, relatively, was put on a porn in schools report that was listed as one of the 58 books that were deemed inappropriate by the Florida Citizens Alliance. What does something like that do to you as an author and illustrator to kind of have to be thrust into this kind of weird situation? Well, it's so disturbing. I mean, on so many levels that this is happening in this way right now. Everywhere Babies was a book that was about babies and all the things that babies do. And I did it, I think it came out in 2001. So that means I was working on it before that, probably in 
99. And when I was starting to illustrate that book, I thought about it as being, at first, I was going to illustrate four families that lived around sort of a central park and kind of stay with those four families and whoever their relatives and friends would be. And I realized four families didn't give me enough of an opportunity to be as inclusive as I wanted to be. And so I just got rid of that idea and opened it out and thought, I'm just going to illustrate as many different kinds of babies and families as I can possibly figure out to do. And then I would go places like I, I went to the LA County Fair and just sort of lurked around and took pictures. And I went to parks and just like places where there's just like a lot of people congregating. And, and that's how I illustrated the book. It was like I, I was mostly concerned that what my hope would be was that any child could find some sort of recognizable, similar kind of family that they might be in, in the book. And so there are same-sex couples that could be, or there are illustrations that could be interpreted as same-sex couples, which, and also just unusual couples that you might not necessarily put together, different ages or, you know, I don't know. I think what is so sad to me is that kids will only look at those kinds of pictures in a way that is personal to them. If they are in a certain kind of situation or know people that remind them of what they're seeing, then they might have that like feeling like, oh, that's us, or that's like us, or that's like our neighbors, or whatever. And that's, that's the whole point to me. So adults looking at the book, on the other hand, do not do that. They're, they're, they, they read pictures in a very different way than children do. And they are not the audience. <laughs> like they are not the audience that I'm concerned about. So to me, it's just a very, I'm sort of heartbroken that this is going on because kids do need to see themselves and their families and as much as possible in books. Just every, every child should be able to see that. And, and I don't really think the book banning is about the issues that the book banners are saying that it's about. It, it's a much more complicated political equation that really has nothing to do with kids <laughs> at all. And so it's, it's just, it's, a, it's frustrating. But I think we have to persevere. There's no real great way to segue from that topic to in every life. So we, we just won't. <laughs> okay. um, so weeks ago, your latest book, In Every Life, was published. And it's already re- received some incredible reviews. Um, for example, it was called A Meditation, A Benediction, and A Lyrical Blessing. Can you talk about the theme and message of the book? I can. And this book has a Pasadena story, like the or, or, a Pasadena origin story. So in 1998, um, I was with, our family was at All Saints Church in Pasadena, and there was this blessing that was like read in a call and response style where the minister sang a part and then the congregation sang a part. And as I listened to it, I thought that could be a picture book. And I took the program and brought it home. And underneath it, it said that that blessing was from the Brit Malah or naming ceremony. It was a Jewish blessing. And I sent it to my then editor and said, hey, like, could this be a picture book? And she agreed, like, it, maybe. Let's figure out, let's find the source. And so we went through some, well, quite a bit of effort to figure out, like, who wrote this blessing. And it turned out to be no one could really quite 
say where it came from originally. We we contacted the American Jewish University, and I even wrote to Anita Diamond, who wrote like the Red Tent and other books on nonfiction books on Jewish life. And she was like, you know, I kept finding it in these handmade baby naming ceremony books and it's just anonymous as far as we can tell. So, so I then started to kind of adapt it thinking there were certain parts that I felt weren't sort of as child accessible as I kind of wanted them to be. And, and so I spent years trying to do that. And the book was also like when we were talking about how children's books over the years have changed, there were many times in that periods through like the last 25 years where the book was deemed maybe too religious for a picture book or too serious or my work was too funny to illustrate it and you know just all these different kinds of opinions and and I couldn't quite figure out how to do it either I couldn't figure out how to unlock that text so it kind of went in and out of a drawer and back and forth to different publishing houses for 25 years and it wasn't until um the first winter of our pandemic that we've been living through that I, I was working on another project. It was a funny book that I couldn't be funny. I just, nothing was funny. I wasn't funny. The book wasn't, it was just becoming unfunnier. And <laughs> is that a word? And so I put it away and took out the blessing. And I thought, you know, maybe now is the time for this. I talked to my editor, Alan Johnston. She works at Beach Lane Books, which is in La Jolla. And we've worked together on books. It's it's an imprint, Beach Lane, of um, Simon & Schuster. So we've, a lot of our, most of my books I've, I've done with her. And she knew about this blessing, and we had worked on it and put it away together a couple times. And she was like, yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe it is the right time to do it. And so that's kind of why it sort of started up again. And, and I feel like because of partly the pandemic, partly because of just living life and just being at a different place in my life, I, I felt like I was, I was ready. I was ready to do it. And I kind of knew what I wanted it to be. There was an interesting interview you gave years ago when a couple of boys had the best week ever came out and you shared that there were 25 text revisions <laughs> and 10 dummies, which I, that's a, that's a term yeah. I used. And it shows how challenging the process is as people that don't illustrate it and write you think about like, oh, someone just does this over a weekend and it comes out perfect and it's done. But this shows you how hard it is to kind of tell these stories. Um, how has the book in every life changed since 1998? Funny enough, I never really got too into the illustrations. Hardly at all, actually. I was doing a lot of text rev- revising, but I couldn't find my way in to start illustrating it. So when I went through my pack of like revisions, it was mostly word revisions. One of the things about the book is that it's like seven lines of text now. And the first one is, in every birth, blessed is the wonder. And the second line is, in every smile, blessed is the light. When I was first thinking about the book, I was thinking that the page term would come after that first phrase. Like, so it would be in every birth, turn the page, blessed is the wonder, turn the page. And I couldn't figure out how to sustain a reader's interest, especially a child's interest, through that page turn. Like reading in every birth, and then you turn the page after seeing whatever you see on that page. And then it would say, blessed is the wonder. It's just, it doesn't, I couldn't figure out how 
her child would be able to follow that thought. And so I kept <laughs> trying to think that it would be solved with an illustration issue, like I could solve it with illustration, and which kind of brings up your point of like, you know, how do you figure it out? It wasn't a child's a long walk, and I realized like, oh, I could put the whole line on a page, have a lot of illustrations that sort of show in sort of individual instances how that's true. So in every birth, blessed is the wonder. And then you look at all these different babies and parents with babies and just, and you take in the whole line. And then you turn the page and then there can be just a wordless sort of like larger one single image of how that might manifest in the world, like in a larger and different scale. And that is what unlocked it for me. And so then it was kind of like, now I know how to do this book. Now I just have to figure out the, the specifics. And so that was kind of like the first time I actually, after all those years, started to, to actually draw it. A subtle but elegant aspect of your illustration is the text, the, the font that you actually used. And in every life, you actually got help from your son, <laughs> who I guess designs fonts. Is that correct? Yeah, he's a typeface designer. That's so interesting. Yes. And he helped you with the typeface. How did you match what you were saying with how you wanted the text to look and feel as the font is as much of a part of the story as as anything? Because that's kind of how the reader hears the voice. And I was thinking about you can't have like a really subtle scene, but then use the Jurassic Park font, for example. So how did you kind of settle on the font? And then how did your son kind of help you with that? You know, there have been a number of my books that I've I've done the lettering in them. Um, so I've, I'm sort of always interested in, in doing that as part of the artwork. I think it's sort of, I don't always do that. Some of them are typeset, but when it works for me, like to do it, I, I like to try. And so with this book, I kind of felt like it was going to be part of the art. And I have these old typography books, and I found a font that I thought I liked, the, you know, and I, and I sort of, in the sketches, put it as part of the artwork. And before I went to finish, I, I asked him, his, his name is Graham Bradley, and actually he designed the display type, the title type as well. Which is beautiful. It's, yeah, it's stunning. I mean, he elevated that cover. Just, I, I love it. So I said, before I, I do the finishes, would you mind just taking a look and telling me if there's anything I did wrong, you know? And I kind of thought I had used this, this book, you know, I was like eyeballing it. Anyway, he gave me so many notes, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to redo the whole thing. But he was right, and I, you know, and, and in the past, I haven't had his expertise to, like, like Everywhere Babies, I did the type, too, and it's kind of similar way. It was part of the artwork, but I think then he was, like, 10 <laughs> or something, so, I, I mean, he was still interested in type then, which is interesting. So anyway, it was it was great to have his eyes on it. And I felt really confident as I went back and and kind of redid, you know, what I needed to that it was it was more pleasing to somebody that knew anything about type, um, which isn't necessarily me. I thought it looked fine. But, you know, types tricky. It really is. It hard. is. It's really hard. It's the how someone hears it. Right. Yeah. And that's really like it's really tricky. Yeah. Because it sets the tone. Yeah. And so it has to mesh really well with, the, with yeah. the book and the story. I mean, I was so grateful to him for, you know, putting his eyes on it and giving me all the 
the little things, and then I ran it by him again. And he did that with the great Zapfino cover as well. So, you know, I don't know that I solved a lot of what he considered to be the problems on, <laughs> on the great Zapfino, but that is a, it's a more forgiving kind of, you know, typography on that book. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's sort of like an old circus poster, right. you know? So I felt, I felt like oh, I can, I can exaggerate this or this is, is maybe odd, but it's gonna, it's gonna be okay. Well, this is a long setup for a short question, but a theme that runs through your work is balance because the world is scary and joyful at the same time. You know, we're, we're parents. We, it's every day is scary. Every day is amazing. Another way you do this is you mix intimate snapshots with your vast scenes. I think we've talked about this a couple of times during this interview and you do this really, really, really well. The, the scene of, Parent and a child seen on the dock looking over the kind of the gray oh. lake, I think is so telling. So is the, the scene where it's raining and there, there's a couple in the cabin, um, which is just kind of shines a little light in the really dark of space. And you've tried to make sense of our big, beautiful world throughout your career. And this book is no exception to that, especially when can you consider this history of the, the story of the book being that it kind of came to life during 2020 which is there was so much of upheaval and um, so much suffering in the world that in a way i think your books are very interconnected and i don't know if you ever think about that we brought home in every life from once upon a time uh, in montrose which is where i bought the book from and um i was reading it with my my seven-year-old son and there's a scene in a large vast scene where you have a, a family hiking through the hills and on the top of the hill there's a it's a tree and i didn't prompt him i didn't suggest this but he said that tree looks like the great tree in all the world and i didn't even tell him that it was the same illustrator or author he just oh. kind of made that connection and so i felt that there was a connection between there's a through line in all your stories what do you think in every life brings to the ongoing story that you're trying to tell through all your work Again, it's a long setup for a short question. I love the setup because one of the things I, I want to say about what you just said, I mean, I never considered that tree as being the tree in all the world, but I love that this was your son. My son, your son. My son saw it. Yeah. And I mean, it just shows how children read pictures in a way that I always am astounded by their ability to read pictures on a level that is just far greater than adults or older children. Once we start reading words, we just aren't as proficient as reading pictures. So when I go into schools, I love to tell the kids in the front, usually they're sitting like, you know, like the youngest in the front, and then it goes into the older grades. And I'm like, you guys are the best at reading pictures in this, you know, way better than the ones in the back now, because like you are experts at it. And it's true. Like, I just think that's so beautiful that he made that connection and saw it that way. And I also think it's a, in, incredible because that tree in all the world was really inspired by a memory of mine with my grandfather where he, I remember being very young and he had a scrappy garden in downtown LA and he liked to plant all kinds of things, including a mulberry tree and a fig tree and avocado tree and everything. And I remember he he showed me this tiny little sprig that was growing, and he said that was an oak tree. He had planted an acorn, and one day it would be an oak tree. And so I remember just thinking, like, wow, 
how is that possible? And when I did that illustration in all the world, I was thinking of that memory, that moment, and him saying that and having that be the oak tree that he showed me. You know, I wanted that to be the tree. So I just love that whole thing about what your son said. I think for me, one of the things that's been really important in my life is being in nature and feeling whatever I'm feeling reflected back at me. Like whatever mood you are in, the world will, if you're in a natural setting, can reflect it back to you. And you feel sort of held by it. At least I do. And I wanted the book to have those those big spreads that I did in, in, a, in every life. I wanted them to operate that way. Like this is an emotional, the world is holding this emotion for us. We in this space are being held by this larger it's, it's, it's a safe way to have this emotion because it's reflected. And, and so I, that's what I was trying to do with those, those moments. Like, so on the, on the spreads that have the text, I'm showing hopefully instances, small moments that we have in our life where, you know, maybe sometimes we might overlook them, but they're important or they're, they're the moments that we might remember forever. I mean, kind of like the oak tree moment. Like, I remember that. It was, I was so young, and I remember it my whole life. And, you know, I wanted those pages to reflect those individual moments that we just sort of carry with us. And then that sense, when you turn the page, of being small in the world. Like, we are not the center of the universe. Like, it's all there, and everyone is involved. And I think I think that's what the pandemic sort of helped me focus on, which is the question of like what connects us all. You know, like it was very disturbing how divided we became and still are and as a culture and as a country. And I really wanted to sort of try and answer that question in the book, like what does connect us all and what is truly important no matter who we are. And that was kind of like the operating principle of what I was trying to get at when I was doing that. Well, there are millions of children's books. However, there are few that truly kind of transcend being just for kids because of the message and the imagery is so vivid and meaningful. And I consider your books to be this way. Where do you want your readers, children and adults, to take away from in every life? It's a question that I just, I don't know that I'm the right person to answer it, to tell you the truth. You never know who's going to connect in what way with what you do. And one of the things that just recently happened to me is is my um, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's like at the beginning of the pandemic. And a few months ago when I got my first copy of In Every Life, I took it over to my folks and I read it to him, with him. And he spent maybe a half an hour at least, if not longer, looking at the pictures and pointing to things that he recognized from his own life because it's a very personal book. And there are things that I put in there that he could tell were resonating with him because of coming from his mother's in it with my youngest son, for instance. And there's a picture of my mom and dad as kids and then in an older I mean, a more recent picture when they're older. And when it was over, when we got to the end, he closed the book and he kissed the back cover and held it to himself. He hugged the book. And then I hugged him and he said, thank you. He's been proud of many of my books and he's told me that over the years. But 
this was a different, this was different. I mean, I felt like when I, when that happened, that this was why I made the book, you know, mm. and I wouldn't have ever thought that that's, that was going to happen, but it was just a blessing. And some, some of the reactions I've had to other books from people that I don't know are so touching to me. So I don't know. I, I guess the hope is that they connect in some way and some of the ways we might not never ever know, you know, but I guess I just try and tell the story as best I can and make the book the as best I can. And then just when it's out in the world, I, I just, I hope people like it. That's a beautiful book. So thank, thank you, you for sharing it with everyone. Thank you. If you could go back and give your third grade self some advice, having just illustrated Lisa's book, The Friendship Circle, what would you say? And I, and I say this because I have a third grader who is an artist. And so I have an ulterior motive for asking <laughs> this question. I want to support her. So what would you say to your third grade self, having just illustrated your, one of your first books, that's such a great question. And I mean, I think I spent so much time doubting myself and how I felt like, like I wasn't feeling the right things or maybe seeing things the way they actually were. And I think what I would tell myself is, no, you are. You, you're, you're seeing what you're seeing and you're feeling what you're feeling. And those are feel confident that that's accurate. Because really, as a, as a young artist... If you're interested in drawing or writing, you need to trust yourself. A lot of time, I didn't. And I think that's when you kind of veer too far away from, from your own, as we said, voice. When you think about the next five years, the next 10 years and beyond, what do you think children's books will be like? And what role do you envision yourself playing? Well, as far as my role, I hope I'm still in the game. I hope I'm still working. I hope I, I still, you know, I'm doing it because um, I love it. I'm very, I just, I love telling stories in words and pictures for children. I hope to be doing as long as I can. As far as what I think there, I mean, I don't, there was a point a while ago when eBooks became such a thing that there were these articles written, what's going to happen to books? Is this the end of books? I don't think it's the end of books. I don't think that at all, like actually. And so I think they're just going to continue to be beloved. I mean, people are just showing that books have staying power they still want to read you know the actual physical book and go into bookstores and and take them off a shelf and so i i'm pretty optimistic that that's going to continue everyone thought uh, ebooks were going to kill books i can't read off an ebook personally yeah. I, I can't it doesn't connect with me and then everyone thought audiobooks were going to kill books and obviously that hasn't yeah. taken off like everyone thought they would so yeah it's interesting to hear your perspective on that so last two questions this is my standard last question that I've used now, which is, if you could design the perfect day in Pasadena from breakfast to late night, what would you do, where would you go, and what would you eat and drink? <laughs> Big question. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Well, it starts with coffee. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm making a really good cup of coffee at home, so I'm going to do that at home. But then I'm going to go take a hike up in our beautiful mountains whether it's Eaton Canyon or behind JPL or Millard, either a waterfall hike or a up on the mountaintop hike. That's how I like to start the morning. I'll come back and be in my studio as long as I can, get some work done, and then I'm going to go to Romans. 
<laughs> hang out at Broman's, take a look at the books, maybe get some. I think we're so lucky to have that bookstore. Okay, then what am I going to do? It's a limitless day. It there, is. there are no it's hours in the day. It's a great day. I don't know. I'm going to meet somebody for tacos, let's say, at Guisados. I like that place. Or is it all Pasadena? Doesn't have to be. <laughs> Casabianca Pizza Pie. Ah, in Eagle Rock. Mm-hmm. Going to do something like that. I'm going to like I'm going to want to go to a movie and now we have sort of I'm not quite sure where the movie theaters are that I'm going to want to go to. I used to love the one that was attached to Romans, but now it's going to be reinvented. Right, it's in the process. So if it's an art house film house, if it's that, I'll go there. And then maybe I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> like late night is not going to happen for me. So that's pretty much my day. Well, the last question, I see this to last, was my five-year-old, with my prompting, asked this question, which was, what is your favorite color? Ah, my favorite color. It changes. I love the greens, though. You can tell from my house, can't you? Like, I mean, I do. It's painted a sort of like pistachio ice cream color and love forest green. Sometimes people say about Southern California, it's so brown, but it's, you know, only in a certain season. I do love the greens. I'm going to say that. That's a good answer. Thank you for being such a great part of Pasadena, for bringing such beautiful art and stories to children and adults, myself included. And for coming on the podcast, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My many thanks to Marla for coming on the show. I'd like to think that every episode is my favorite episode. But I have to admit that this one is kind of hard to beat. Marla is generous, honest, and kind. And these traits can be seen in every word she writes and drawing she creates. We sat in her beautiful backyard and had a thoughtful conversation over a plate of cookies and fruit she made for us. Before I left, Marla offered to inscribe several of her books from my family's collection. And how could I say no? On the inside cover of the great Zapfino, she waved her magic pen and all of a sudden, one of my favorite characters appeared with the caption, Take the Leap. Her message is unmistakable. Create bravely. Marla's work continues to inspire me to be a better parent and to show my children the world as she so beautifully sees it. You can buy her books everywhere, but please support your local independent bookstore. For more information, please visit her website marlafrazy.com and follow her on Instagram for wonderful pictures of her hikes and other updates. Finally, I want to dedicate this episode to Marla's mom and dad. You are in our thoughts. There are many people that keep this show going. First, I want to thank my Patreon sponsors, Jess and Albert. I really appreciate your continued support. Second, to my family for all their love to keep this project alive. And finally, to all that listen, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show or supporting it through direct sponsorship or Patreon. This is the only podcast that has never been supported by a mattress company, Athletic Greens, or a meal kit. I love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, take the leap, and as always, see you around town. Do you like podcasts? No. No. Hey, Dad.
Hodge. Why don't you? <laughs> They're weird. Okay, well, I'm going to start over. Start over. Okay. Do you like podcasts? No. Why don't you like podcasts? Because they are boring. Okay.